We acknowledge that we are on Treaty 6 territory, the gathering grounds of many diverse First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples, whose footsteps mark this land and whose presence continues to enrich our vibrant community. Hello and welcome back to Research Recast at the Knowledge Mobilization Podcast. I'm Dylan Cave and I'm here with Brittany Eklund. This summer we're taking some time to catch up with our last season's researchers and today we're following up with episode one guests chatting about Niganon Housing Ventures. Joining us again is Cheyenne Grayeyes and Dr. Cynthia Pudu. If you missed their episode, we recommend going back and giving that a listen before we dive in today. Hi, both of you. Welcome back. It's very nice to see your faces again. It's nice to be back. Yeah, it's nice to be back. Um, so this is kind of an extra special follow-up episode because you joined us for our first ever episode um, a year ago, pretty much. Uh, we'd love to hear about what you've both been doing over the past year. In like life or just yeah, yeah, in, yeah, life, in work, in love, in <laughs> in whatever. Um well it's, you know, we don't I, we only have a limited amount, so maybe I'll just focus on the research. But okay. I've been I'm and uh, so I um actually was back to teaching again more. I wasn't teaching as much when I was uh working in the research office. So um now I've had an opportunity to get back into the classroom and um, was like, oh, I do really like doing this. Um, <laughs> it's nice to I get do back like to being the... in the in the classroom and was teaching um, some new classes on social determinants of health and and able to sort of take what what I've really enjoyed. Um, you know, there's always the conversation of teaching and research and how do they influence each other? Or do they influence each other? And I I truly believe for myself, um, I am a much better. Um, teacher in the classroom because of the research that I do. Um, the research that I do informs me about the content that I teach in the classroom. I teach social determinants of health. I teach health education. I teach research methods. Um, and so being back teaching as much, um, teaching more really has reminded me the importance of my research program in becoming a better teacher. Um, and so, so I've really enjoyed doing that, being back in the classroom. I still don't enjoy the marking, but I'm pretty sure everybody says that. Um, <laughs> so, so that's why we try and find creative ways to make marking more enjoyable. Um, and, uh, you know, from the research front in terms of the program with Niganan and Omamuwangogamik, um, things have changed and things haven't changed. Uh, I think we talked about last year, how uh, COVID really made it difficult to um, start our research, to engage participants, um, to get to know the youth at Omamuwangogamik, and that didn't change. In fact, I think it possibly got more difficult because there were more lockdowns, uh, more public health measures that made it uh, difficult to connect with the youth. Um, so, so we can maybe go into that a little bit more. I'll, I'll let Shan talk a little bit more about, um, give some background on her. So yeah, so we, we had some great moments, but it, it definitely was a challenge. And one of the things that, you know, we're a year into the project, uh, we finally have participants. We've been able to do a few interviews only in the last couple months, um, was, uh, when we're, we're talking about it, we've, we've done quite a few different webinars and presentations and conferences, and we're writing up some papers and really they're about, how do you do research during COVID? How do you engage people during COVID? Um, more than, um, I, you know, we are sharing the story of what uh, Niganan is doing and sharing the experiences. 
um, but it's really coupled with the difficulties of doing our research and also Negan and programming with the confines of COVID restrictions. So I'll let Cheyenne talk a little bit. Yeah, so we, yeah, where we had left off, I was um, a researcher like on the outside of Umamu Wangogamik and I want to say back in March, um, I was hired as a youth worker on site at Umamu. Um, And so that's been a major change, at least from my perspective. Um, When it comes to the project, it was a total switch up going from a relatively like hands-off research point of view to very much being directly involved with the residents and the staff um, at Umamu. So it's very, um, in my perspective, very uh, gratifying work. Like I really enjoy um, youth work and we've, we have seen an uptick in participation from youth and other residents um, since I've been there uh, with programming and stuff like that. So we are getting like some momentum definitely. And like Cynthia was saying in the last couple months, um, being able to do <clears throat> some interviews but it really made a major difference actually having that position there. Um, Umamu had lost its youth worker back in the end of October of 2021 and went without a youth worker for, that'd be five months until March. Yeah, so that really put a stall out on the program in terms of just participation because um, it's really necessary to have that direct relationship with the youth or they're not going to engage. So right. not having that youth worker position for five months, it we kind of had to build it from the ground up again. But since March, we've gotten some solid hires at Umamu, and we've really seen um, when the staff are all on one page um, moving forward, we're getting a lot done. And I think like, it being a pilot project, it takes a little bit to really get your feet firmly planted. And so that's what we've been witnessing for the last year is the growing pains of that. Getting staff on site who truly understand Corolla, the CEO of um, Umamu and Nick- or of Niganan, right? Okay, I didn't want to. <laughs> of Niganan, like what her goal, what her mission is. And so you can kind of see how she's been curating her staff over the last year. So um, definitely some changes, but something you only that we've really been seeing from the inside as staff members. And it's yet to leak over onto the research a lot yet. Yeah, and that, it's such a good point. So, um, you know, I often have done talks and presentations on how do you create relationships and community and doing research with community. And I always, one, it's important to get to know the community in terms of the participants that you want to work with. But if it's, let's say, uh, you know, you're working with youth or, um, you know, with groups where there's different staff that like if it's permanent supportive housing or whatever it is, the relationship with the staff, uh, I think is almost more important than the relationship with your research participants because the staff are the ones that know what's going on on the ground with the youth or with, you know, whoever it is that you're working with, Does you know, if you're working with seniors or, or whatever. And, and so creating relationships with people that work in an organization is so important because they, um, 
one can be a liaison for the the researchers because you do need to get to know um, again the people whether it's living in a in a seniors facility or in a youth home or whatever it is. Um, but you can't get to know them if the staff aren't there to to assist that relationship building. And so that that was one of the growing pains. And and Shan mentioned it's it, like Omamu and Gogamek is a pilot. Like it is brand new. It started in September of 2020. And so um different than other um projects that Niganon runs, like Ambrose Place that has been open for over 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sure they've got some staff turnover, but they're a much better well-oiled machine um, than Omamu because Omamu is new. And I know um, some of the uh, researchers that are working with us, uh, like Aaron Gray and Social Work and uh, Josh Evans from the U of A, they worked with Niganon when Ambrose started. And so they are like, you know, we saw similar things. So so a lot of what we're seeing is when a new organization starts, what are the growing pains in ter- terms of getting the staff? And so we as researchers, we've been there from the beginning and trying to create those relationships with staff when the organization is sort of figuring itself out, then um, I don't want to say it creates challenges, but makes it um, uh, makes that relationship building a bit more complicated, right? Because there was some staff turnover, like there were a few different managers that left and, and ones that were running the youth program. And so then that impacts our ability to connect with the youth. So um, that was the one thing is one having Cheyenne now working there and also the the new manager of the youth programs is he's like beyond on board, right? He's so keen. And so that from a research perspective of getting to know um, the organization and getting to know the youth and engaging definitely has made it easier now um, to be able to engage with youth and to be able to get to know them. And so it's such a, um, you know, when you're looking at doing community research, those relationships are, it's all about relationship building. And, yeah. and you know, we always, you know, if we talk, and Shan obviously will be able to talk about this better than me, but, uh, you know, I, I've talked to Kroll about, you know, Indigenous research methods and Indigenous ways of knowing, and it's all about relationship building. And and I'm like, that's so important in community research, right? I, I think many times I've said, I'm pretty sure the community <laughs> research people have probably stolen from <laughs> the Indigenous ways of knowing because relationship building is so important. Um, and without those relationships, it's so hard to to get in and get to know people. And so that's why now, COVID aside, um, there is that momentum. We're starting to get to know the youth a bit more and being able to connect with them because we have stronger relationships happening as well. Well, it must have been a challenge to with that staff turnover, like you said. You know, it's it's hard to really connect with people when when your youth aren't seeing the same people r- repeatedly. So now that you, I think you're saying you have more of a, a solid foundation of people that are there kind of all the time now. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like a revolving door of staff is only a reminder to your residents or your clients that um, that this is a job position and they are a job. And having like that continuous revolving door of staff not only makes it difficult because the residents have to then try again and connect with this new staff member every time they come on, but it's also a constant reminder that um, we're there for a paycheck. And sometimes that can create like um, almost a dissonance or a disconnect. And so having solid staff there that want to stay there long term is important to the health overall of the building and community. Um, creating consistency for people who often don't experience or, or experiencing consistency and stability for the first time in their lives 
in several different ways, having staff being constant and them not having to worry about, oh, is my, am I going to see my favorite staff member today or this or that? So yeah, establishing the building and community with long-term staff who are fully invested in the goal and don't necessarily want to leave are staff members that you want to stick around because you can see the improvement in the residents like themselves. So it must be hard to find people that are that invested in that, that it's their life, not their job. Yeah. And unfortunately I can't even, I, I, I can't even stay in this job position all the way through the year. I have to go back to school in the fall for my last year. Of course. So yeah. Cause I think last podcast, it was supposed to be my last year and then I went on medical leave. So this will be my last year again. And it's, difficult because I've built so many good and strong relationships with the youth and other tenants that um, I feel like leaving would backpedal and potentially like harm some of the progress that we've made in participation. So there's another youth worker in place so that when I leave, he's all ready to go and the program should stay in place. But um, yeah, even that like just circumstances stop me from being exactly one of those staff that can create consistency. Yeah. I'm hoping like when I go back, I can be one of those staff members, but yeah, that it, it's a sucky part of it. It's like, oh, yeah. I have to leave and go back to school. And that that's not uncommon in this sector because uh-huh. people don't, don't get paid enough to no. stay you, in these positions. Will right? you be able to resume, like, will you be able to stay there in some capacity um, by, then rejoining like as a research assistant or have you remained a research assistant? I have remained a research assistant ethically. Um, so uh, yeah, as much as we can, um, I have remained a research assistant, but um, youth work takes up such a predominant amount of my time. I mean, you, you know, usually when you click, you're like off the clock, right? Once you leave the building, you're off the clock. But there are like aspects to youth work where it's like if your resident is messaging you at this point at some night asking about programming or trying to get in touch with someone like I'm not going to ignore them. So I think with youth work, it's a little interesting because I'm always some aspect still on the clock because they know that if they call me, eventually I'm going to pick up and I'm probably going to do something about it. So um, and like with research work, I get to be a little bit more hands-off and I truly wish I could stay in capacity as a youth worker while going to school but like I said when you don't really come off the clock it's difficult to only work say four hours a week especially if you've already built relationships with people and they've depended on you um in a way that you can support them in a 30-hour week not yeah a four-hour week and so it's best if I just step away entirely over the winter and let them adjust without me and then hope that they're ready to take me back in the summer once I've graduated. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, so, so, you know, I don't know if you noticed Shan said stay as a researcher, research assistant ethically. So now that she's staff, we've kind of, because our research assistants or our other research assistant, Selena, like she comes with me when we do interviews and we'll look at, uh, you know, when we're doing our, um, interpretation of data, looking at transcripts. And because now Shan has moved on as a youth worker, those are some of the things that she's not doing anymore. So from a research assistant perspective, like she's helping us with our literature reviews and writing papers mm-hmm. and those kinds of things. But because she's now staff and has much closer relationships, 
um, we, we, sh she needs to sort of step aside from that other stuff because, you know, when we're doing interviews, we want them to be candid. And, and also from an ethics perspective, we ask that the youth workers aren't in the room because so that the youth can feel comfortable talking with That's us. That's interesting right? to me because it feels counterintuitive that someone would be more candid with a researcher they don't know them more candid with mm -hmm. than someone they've built a relationship with. It depends. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's why we're trying to create relationships, right? But if, so we're trying to get a sense of what is it like to live here? And what if they, um, are, you know, they aren't happy with something? Well, they might not be candid about that, right? It, yeah. now, they, now they may not share that regardless, but they're definitely not going to share it if the person's in the room with no. them, right? And um, also keeping in mind in this project as a staff, you're, this isn't just like after school programming, like this is housing. Mm -hmm. yeah. So there are aspects that yeah. if, you know, they say something out loud, I'm mandated to, to say something to the rest of the housing and to the staff. And so there should be absolutely no reason that the research is creating any aspect of insecure housing. And that's yeah. why I absolutely am not in the room. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So there's lots of, lots of reasons. And even, you know, from a recruitment perspective, right. We, um, when we do like our, our, uh, consent forums and those kinds of things. Uh, it's just myself and, and the other research assistant so that the youth don't feel like they're coerced and, mm -hmm. and forced into it because they're like, Oh, I want to make Shan happy. Right. Yeah. Um, so, so like, it's <laughs> one thing for them to say, Hey, are you, do you want to talk to Cynthia about it? It's another thing to be in the room when I'm actually going through the consent process. Um, it's another thing to be in the room when we're actually doing a full on interview. Um, yeah, we want them to be as candid and, and, you know, they might not be as candid. So one of the things we're looking at um, is actually having some of the youth that um, are interested in sort of going beyond just being participants, maybe working with us and maybe facilitating some of those conversations. Um, you know, I've I've been to a few sessions with people that either have lived experience of homelessness and, and, and those kinds of things um, where they talk about you know, if you as a researcher ask me something, I'm going to tell you one thing. But if my friend asks me something, I'm going to tell them something else. And so there's a lot of work in the area with peer researchers, right? Peers asking the questions um, that, and, and, you know, the researcher might be in the room, but it's if the peer is facilitating. And again, I know the work that was done with Ambrose Place, that was a big thing was um, it was Ambrose residents that were facilitating those conversations. And that can um, get people to be a bit more, more candid um, about their experiences. Yeah. Like everything you explained, all the different sides, it really brings to light, like how complex it is <laughs> working in this kind of research where mm -hmm. you really are trying to learn about people's lived experiences and the way that it's a lot of it is very subjective. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And, and it's their experiences, first of all. Um, but it's also to keep in mind with people that, um, very possibly don't have a good opinion about what research is, right? Um, or, you know, may, maybe not necessarily the the people we're working with Omamu, um, but I know when working with other um, people from the unhoused population, or I was just in Vancouver for a conference, a lot of people from downtown east side, I think that is probably the most researched community, at least in British Columbia, um, because they had the first safe consumption site and mm -hmm. those kinds of things. And, and so... Um, they're very leery of people just coming in, collecting data, especially when it's like, oh, my student has a project. Can they interview about oh what it's gosh. like? To, oh, and it happens all just like the hell. What is time. it? The, the parachute. Helicopter, yeah, yeah, helicopter, helicopter researchers, parachute research. Right. And so um, 
yeah, that, that makes it more complex. Why is it important to have those relationships? Um, but also why is it important from, you know, that, that feeling of safety that I'm going to say something, but it's not going to impact my housing or my relationship with my youth worker. Mm -hmm. And, and so it is, it's a really complex thing to navigate that I'm always learning new when different ways of doing it just because yeah the the last thing you want to do is is create harm not just for the the people that you're interviewing but even the organization like I've I've been in situations where you're talking about the work that an organization does and when you uncover things it'd be like oh man if funders heard about this they might not be very happy about it so but it's something that's so important about how the work is done in order to help people and so mm -hmm. yeah, it's it's really complex when and you're I'm doing sure, community research. I'm sure every project's different too. Like uh, the way um, you know, it's not a one size fits all model of of doing research this way. Nope. No, <laughs> absolutely not. You have to not. really cater to the community that you're working with. I think. Yeah, yeah, and um, on top of that, like Indigenous people as a whole, we're pretty. Um, unlikely to talk to people especially researchers like in those spaces like we had um this was when I had started as a youth worker a couple of months ago um but some people want to hear their stories not for the same reasons as we want to hear them because it boosts some people's ego in some way or another um and that could be a reason. Cynthia, you want to help me explain? Do you know which, what I'm talking about, Avi? Yeah. When, like in terms of people coming and doing interviews and, and. Yeah. I guess, I guess that um, sometimes when people want to come and interview. Um, not necessarily for research. No, not, a, not <laughs> unnecessarily re for research, but um, they have like an ulterior motive for wanting the story. It might make someone look good or. It's unfortunate, but some people, they just want to read a good sob story and then feel better at the end because it was successful in some way. And those stories are great, but it really doesn't show the amount of people that don't have a story like right. that. And it just kind of, it puts our tenants and our residents in a weird position because they want to be able to tell their story. Um, so it it just matters who's trying yeah, to but tell it's like it. That I see it on TikTok all the time. It's it's this this idea that people are like videotaping them doing good things. It's called um, poverty porn. That's yeah, poverty I, porn. I wasn't sure if I was allowed to say. Oh, I'm calling yeah, that poverty yeah. porn. Absolutely, okay. trauma yeah. porn. Just yes. like it's it's yeah, absolutely it is, it is yeah. exploiting those that are living in uh, difficult experiences or going through something, um, either to exploit their story so that. Oh, let's donate to this cause. Yeah. <laughs> like it, and yeah. that happens. Yes. That happens all the time, right? Um, or it's yeah, like I mean, it's the whole format. World Vision is built on. So yeah, like, like it just. Oh my it's, gosh, yeah. Um, or or look at me. I just or I don't know. Do people do TikToks of themselves giving stuff away? To, yes, right. Yes. Like yes. That, that's just you're not doing anything to help those groups, right? Like it's it's yeah. not helping. Um, and so yeah, I I think at least from a research perspective, we have a research ethics board that. Um, although, you know, that makes us do things in, or makes us at least think about how to do things in an ethical way. Um, but there are groups, I mean, you know, it is not just researchers doing research. It is, no. um, people in the city, it is funders. It's those kinds of things that 
may or may not do research in ways that is not exploit exploitive, right? And mm -hmm. so, um, yeah, I think there was, there's situations where, you know, we asked in our project, we're asking, you know, tell us a little bit about where you came from, what was it like before you came here? Um, and just, just, I try and uh, ask questions that they're comfortable answering. And if they don't want to answer it, then we're, we're done. Whereas I know there was a, a, an experience recently where someone that was doing an interview for, I don't know what they were promoting, but uh, was asking a resident about, well, almost like, well, why did you make these choices? And oh my goodness. How did, right? Yeah. So, um, and, and, and again, with us, it's like, we're keeping the data. You're going to see what you say. And if you're not happy, if you don't want us to share that, we won't. Whereas when it's for, depending what media, there's not that guarantee, right? And so, so mm -hmm. I think that's the concern that that Shan was talking about. Yeah, that just um, and and the thing is too is for residents who have come a long way. Um, I mean, for some of these people, they've changed their entire lives around, incredibly so. I mean, beaten levels of addiction that are like statistically unheard of, right? They have phenomenal, fantastic stories of self-determination and perseverance. Um, they wanna be able to tell these stories, right? So when a journalist or an interviewer comes up and they're comfortable enough to share their story and they're willing, they're not exactly concerned about the ulterior motive of the journalist or the underlying reason for that researcher. They just wanna be able to tell their story. And so, yeah, we want to make sure none of that's misrepresented for them. Um, and that, yeah, they're truly comfortable in all different aspects. And it, I mean, it, it's, it's what makes this work interesting. Yeah. Especially. So, yeah. and going back, so, you know, um, Shane talking about indigenous peoples and their, their distrust of research for very oh, yeah, good reasons. Oh yeah. That's why I brought this yeah. up. I was like, um, why was I talking about but, that? But so, Here's where we're going. So last year, a lot of the land-based teaching and learning that um, Carla was hoping to bring the youth to just didn't happen because of COVID. And so mm -hmm. this year, it's like holy explosion of oh, ceremony yeah. and lots of stuff going yeah. on, which is really exciting. In fact, there's something happening uh, next week that maybe yes. Shan can talk about. But our goal is then, okay, they go to fasting camp and then can we talk to them? Can we talk to them about it and see what it was like? And um, how we're working as a group is we have our interview questions, but we're always consulting with Cheyenne and Corolla on what are the best questions. And so I was talking to Shan about, well, how do I, like, what are some questions I can ask re related to the ceremony? And she said, well, you can do it around the medicine wheel. And I was like, oh yeah, me, not that familiar <laughs> with the medicine wheel, right? So Cheyenne and I have been working and she's been giving me some of the information and the teachings about the medicine wheel. And, and my concern was like, should I be the one asking these questions? And so with Shan, cause she obviously can't, cause again, we yeah. Yeah. she won't be in the room, right? <laughs> um, and uh, so, so she's helping me in crafting the questions that will be respectful. And then we'll talk to Corolla about it. And mm -hmm. so again, it's a constant like back and forth. Like it's this, very um researchy word iterative process where we're going around back and forth and and yeah. just constantly communicating with our community partner with um you know people that are that are knowledgeable about the way to do these questions and and so that we're doing it in a respectful way so. mm -hmm. okay so um, yeah we are 
Already? Home? No, we're not there yet. Uh, we're reaching the end of our time, but I would love to hear um, if you do want to talk about some of the ceremony and programming that is actually going to now be going into motion um, and yeah. just update us on that. That would be great. Um, yeah. So since being a youth worker, I've had the opportunity to basically start our program um, fresh um, so that's been really amazing building programming over March, April, May, and June now. Wow, I've already done four months of programming already. That's pretty good. Um, <clears throat> so one of the things I focus on is like Umamu, Wangogamek, they already run AA and A and sharing circles. Um, and those can be very emotionally heavy. And so my youth programming is... Um, built on the idea of reparenting, which is a topic that if, you know, um, Corolla speaks on it on different interviews, podcasts and conferences and this sort of stuff. But that essentially um, a lot of these youth have experienced so much trauma during their formative years that they weren't able to experience things that kids should have been able to experience. And so actually a lot of my programming is built upon like healing the inner child Um I know it seems like, oh, I'm doing a lot of fun and silly type programming for youth ranging from 18 to 30. Like it, you, if you looked at my programming sheet, it would look like I built it for a bunch of 13, 14 and 15 year olds. But truthfully, that's like where they have the best time, because sometimes in sharing circles or in AA, it's incredibly emotionally heavy. And not everyone is able to deal with their trauma like upfront and in a verbal way in front of other people much less like in therapy or <laughs> to an interviewer. And so I have focused on building types of programming that gets them out of their shell in a different way and still facilitates healing, but almost as a subconscious background thing. Because, and, and Native people will tell you, continuously acknowledging your trauma on a daily basis, like in front of other people is traumatizing and triggering. Like right. it's not a comfortable process to constantly be having to deal with your stuff on the outside especially with everything that's happening right now. Like we still have retributions to 60 scoop and residential school. The outside space for indigenous people isn't always comfortable right now. And so creating spaces of, of childlike happiness is really what I focused on. So like the end of this month, we're doing a water balloon fight. Yeah. It's, it's just something we're actually, it's going to be um, the water balloon uh, track and field day. So there's gonna be like a water balloon shot put toss and um, obviously a full water balloon war, but, and then like um, an egg toss. So just those types of things, things that unexpectedly you wouldn't think that that programming would really get a lot of momentum, but no, that's where I get the most participation. Yeah, and those are things I'm trying to attend because it's like, oh, field trip to Fort Edmonton. Yeah, that's today, come. but it's raining, uh, so we'll yeah. see. But, but you know, those are things like, that I can then hang. It's one thing to, this is Cynthia. She's from the university. What you know, like, yeah. or hey, here's Cynthia. She's at Fort Edmonton with yeah, us. Yeah, I nailed her out. with the water balloon. Right, Real absolutely, you know, like, absolutely. It's a better way to create relationship and yeah. and get to know people. Yeah. Um, well, and the gloves kind of come off a little bit in those situations. You get like truly genuine, funny situations yeah. with other people. Have a couple giggles. Your guard is down. Um, and when they see your guard come down and you're like, oh, I'm not some hoity toity researcher or whatever. They're like, oh, you're like a cool person, like with a personality and then they can get to know you. Yeah. And that's how, and, and that's, what's been difficult 
with COVID, right? When my p- previous research, I would be like every day at the organization and we just couldn't do that. And so mm-hmm. we're really grateful that things are now sort of settling. Knock on wood. Knock on wood. Able yeah. to, to sort of do that again. Yeah. So. And then, so the ceremony, yeah, we, um, ceremony has become um, a lot more consistent and that programming is really enriching. Um, like I said, we focus on medicine wheel, right? physical, mental, spiritual, and emotional um, ceremony hits a lot of those emotional and spirit boxes. Um, So it's really necessary for the overall health and growth of the building to have continuous ceremony. So smudging happens every day in the building. There's at least um, a sweat every two weeks and opportunities to go out onto the land um, pretty consistently throughout the week. Um, So at the end of this week, we will start our fasting camp. Um, it's a very important ceremony with several different rites of passages, but mostly just with the goal of having our tenants, having participants like just root and ground themselves in in ancestry and spirituality and belonging of of rootedness, and a lot of that comes through ceremony um for some people for some people where it has that effect that's what it means to them it's a very home-like feeling and and for others they prefer to go about their spirituality in different ways but this is really um and for some people who have grown up without culture and community um especially um for urban indigenous population there's a massive disconnect between our communities when it comes to ceremony and stuff like that. Um, if you're an urban indigenous person, you're most likely interacting with ceremony for your first time in these types of situations. And so to start it or do something like a fasting camp is, uh, it's pretty incredible. It's actually quite ambitious. I think most people would have stopped at just a sweat or a pipe ceremony, something that was achievable within a small space, but no, Corolla and Umamu and Niganan were like, no, we're not just doing this halfway. We're doing a fasting camp because in Corolla's mind, she understands that even if just one, two, three residents fast, um, in our way of thinking, when you fast for the first time or you do something like Sundance for the first time, everything changes after what Corolla is providing that opportunity in that space is for another chance at another 180. Um, everything could change afterwards if you wanted it to. And um, yeah, she's she's not stopping halfway. She's making sure they get the whole experience and um, get everything they need in that space. So I'm really excited to watch it happen. And I'm, I'm excited to see which of the residents are going to be really engaged Um six straight days out on the land, which um, there's a couple of youth, they, they'd never left the perimeters of the city. This is going yeah. to be the first time, like we're throwing them head first into the deep end um, and some of them are going to swim and it's going to be pretty incredible. We might have to throw some like life jackets out or whatever. I mean, <laughs> but that's what you're there for and it's a safe there. and guided experience. Absolutely. And that's yeah. really no wonderful. No harm, only uh, just... I'm excited for them. Really excited. And you know that even if it's only a few residents that that participate in that first one, it might be enough to, to for others to see the strength that they they've done to do that that ceremony. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's a big thing to commit to. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, like, 
yeah, it's a big thing. So I commend our residents for being open to the idea to begin with, because once you sit in some of those meetings and we outline, okay, this is what happens during the camp. This is what you have to do for yourself. It's not an easy journey. Um, you know what these residents will be doing over the next four days through fast. Um, they'll be challenging their own mentality, their own physicality, their own spirituality, and their own emotions up front, just in their face. And for some, it's a very difficult process. And for others, when they make it out on the other end, facing all aspects of themselves in that way, uh, it's like staring at yourself in the mirror silently for four days. I mean, you come out a different person. At yeah. The end. Yeah. Well, I'm very excited um, for you and for the residents to do that. And I'm really excited for you to continue to build this research process and kind of adapt and, and work together on Nigana Ventures and Umamu and Gogamik because mm -hmm. I think um, as a pilot, this is a really interesting way forward and really promising. Yeah, um, it's very exciting. And I just, I know we got to go, but <laughs> I can't go without saying, we're just reminding everyone that we've mentioned Corolla Cunningham several times. She yeah. is the CEO of Niganan Housing Ventures and a knowledge keeper that just informs all our work. And um, McEwen um, honored her with an honorary doctorate in November. Mm -hmm. So I just yes. wanted everybody to remember that and just have <laughs> a look at her ceremony because she had some uh, very knowledgeable link. words yes if you guys please. have some links to i i heard you mention some podcasts and stuff we can oh, absolutely yeah. throw some links in the episode description if you want to follow up with that thank you mm -hmm. you're welcome thank you both so much for joining us here today this is so great catching up with both of you uh after you know going from our first episode to now our our recap at season one of this podcast with the original uh the brainchild of this <laughs> podcast it's been so great having both of you here well, and congratulations yeah. to both of you because yeah, you've done an you. amazing job yeah this i wish we had more fantastic. time today <laughs> us too yeah awesome this has been a Research Recasted Reunion. Thanks so much for listening and stay tuned for more follow-ups with our researchers. Please visit us on Instagram at Research Recasted to give us a like and a follow. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you like to listen. This has been Research Recasted, a knowledge mobilization podcast brought to you by the Office of Research Services and Faculty of Fine Arts and Communications at McEwen University. Research Recasted is hosted and produced by Dylan Cave and Brittany Eklund. Music, sound design, and editing by Dylan Cave. With research, copy editing, and scripting by Brittany Eklund. Executive producer is Ray Marie.